Alright, here we are back again. Very warm welcome everybody to Didactic Mind, episode 78. How to start your own heresy. A very warm welcome to all of my friends, uh, long-time listeners, long-time readers, long-time subscribers. Uh, many thanks to all of those who very recently subscribed, actually, um, because you have uh, just joined my mailing list, I know. I mean, I got like 10 new subscribers all of a sudden. And uh, the reason for that is because of an, um, an article of mine in which I basically um, l- looked at Bill Gates's recent divorce announcement. It's called uh, Marriage.exe Has Suffered a Fatal Error, um, <laughs> which if you're at all familiar with what... Uh, bloody Windows was like back in the days of 95, 98, and uh, Vista, uh, you will know how bad it was as an operating system and how, particularly under Windows 98, it would just routinely crash. It was just so badly built. Um, and Vista would just, you know, completely give up the ghost every about 30 minutes. Um, at least in my experience, I mean, some people had... Uh, uh, you know, better experiences or worse experiences, I don't know. But um, for me, at least, it was a horribly unstable system. Uh, we've come a long way since then. Windows 7 was and remains the best version of Windows ever. Uh, it was genuinely a great operating system. But Bill Gates um, divorce is divorcing his wife of 27 years, Melinda Gates, uh, wife is something of a loose term in this situation because, um, honestly, she looks like a dude. Uh, and she looked like a dude even back when he married her, so I'm, I'm not sure what's going on there. But um, all I will say is that uh, this is classic gamma behavior to find and marry a very unattractive woman um, who looks more masculine than the man does. And uh, Bill Gates himself in terms of his management style, is a classic gamma. Um, everything that you read and hear about him indicates this is a, a huge gamma. And if you're not familiar with gamma, well, that's where our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, Vox Day comes in. And as he pointed out uh, many years, well, not many years ago, several years ago, back in about 2014 or so, um, there is a very clear observable hierarchy of sociosexual behaviors among men. Among women, it's nobody knows what the hierarchy is. There is one, but we just don't know what it is. It's impossible to figure out. So uh, in that article, um, I basically broke down who and what Bill Gates is and why he's a gamma. And uh, our our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, (laughs) picked it up. And uh, as a result, I got like 4,000 page views in one day, which was crazy. Uh, it was a very, very interesting day. And a whole bunch of you signed up from that one article. So I really want to thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Um, I also want to take this opportunity to tell you uh, that if you have not already looked at the possibility of getting a VPN, you need to do so. You need to look at an article of mine um, which is one of the most important that I've ever written in eight and a half years of writing. I think this is one of this, one of the single most important articles, like within the top 10 
of anything I've ever written. It's called Protect Yourself from Big Tech. And in it, I break down the steps by, that you can take personally right now to avoid big tech censorship. And this is incredibly, incredibly important, particularly in this day and age. I was just talking about Bill Gates. This is one of the guys who wants to stop you from speaking and thinking freely. He wants you to get a not vaccine um, so that you can go back to living your life, you know, being quote unquote free to live within the parameters of his walled garden. He's, this is again, classic gamma behavior. These are the kinds of guys who think they know what's best for you better than you know yourself. These are the kinds of people who, um, think that they can, uh, figure out all the problems in the world and inevitably they end up creating many more problems than they solve. Um, these are not good people to be around. There is a reason why everybody hates gammas, including other gammas, by the way. Other gammas can't stand gammas. Um, but if you, oh, for God's sake, uh, you know what? Let me close this down. This is pissing me off. Um, if the reason you're hearing all those pings in the background is because one of my colleagues was pinging me on WhatsApp, and this usually doesn't happen when I'm podcasting, but today, apparently, you know, is go bug didact day. Um, because I've got like three huge assignments due in the next, uh, projects basically due within the next, uh, what, month, effectively. I mean, it's, you know, it is what it is. Uh, it's just, it's painful, but we'll get through it. Um, but anyway, in terms of protecting yourself from men like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Sergey Brin, Larry Page, and their flunky over at uh, the Gulag, uh, Sundar Pichai, Sundarajan Pichai, as, as he is more properly known, uh, and Mark Zuckerberg, the, the Zuckerberg over at, uh, at uh, Facebook, and uh, Jack Dorsey over at Twitter. If you want to protect yourself from these people who dream themselves to be your masters, then you need a VPN. And the best VPN that you can get right now, the best value, the best um, protection, the best range of servers, the best range of services is Surfshark. There's a link in the description box for this video and on my site for the post on, on my site. Um, and you will be able to uh, get an 81% discount, 81% off of Surfshark today uh, if you sign up for a two-year contract, and the total for that those two years comes to $2.49 a month. So, you know, for basically about, what, 60 bucks a month, something like that, 65, um, you will be able to surf the web uh, much more securely than you're doing right now. You will be able to use a Surfshark VPN client on all of your devices without limit, and this is a much better deal than almost any other VPN provider that you will get. I mean, NordVPN, as much as I like NordVPN, uh, restricts you to six devices at a time. Surfshark, there are no restrictions, no limitations. And furthermore, that post, Protect Yourself from Big Tech, will show you how to set up your own independent web presence, how to create your own website, create your own platform, how to build yourself a future away from big tech censorship. And if you want to do that, you need to start from that post onwards. That is where it all gets broken down and you will understand exactly where you need to go and what you need to do to start setting up your own 
business, your own site, your own platform, whatever it is you want to do, you'll be able to do it from there. So go check it out. Um, I didn't do a podcast last week because number one, I was incredibly busy. Number two, I was a bit lazy. And number three, frankly, I didn't really have anything all that interesting to say. Um, it was hard to find the motivation to speak about anything because I felt like I'd kind of covered a lot. But this week, as you probably noticed from the posts, I've been kind of half-arsing it. And the reason is because I've just been so busy with everything else. I mean, when you're staring at valuation models for, you know, four hours a day continuously. And for me, by the way, that's interesting. I love doing that sort of stuff. I love taking financial statements and ripping them apart and trying to figure out what is the ROE and how does that break down and how does that change and how does this change? You know, for me, it's actually child's play because compared to what I'm used to doing um, in past lives, where which involved uh, data analysis, statistics, hardcore regressions, hardcore financial uh, modeling, serious Excel models, this stuff is easy. I mean, this is just like divide this number by that number and figure out what the ratio is. It's easy. Um, but it was hard to find the energy to kind of say anything worthwhile. Uh, but today is something of an interesting day. Today is May the 9th, and it used to be known in Europe, or at least in parts of Europe, I think, um, as VE Day. Now, not all of Europe, I know. I mean, different bits of Europe celebrate VE Day on different dates. But um, in Russia, in particular, May 9th, is, yeah, actually, uh, VE Day was uh, yesterday for most of Europe. It was uh, May 8th. Um, but on May 9th, in particular, the Russians celebrate VE Day, or as they call it, the Day of Victory. Um, how do I put it? Если вы слушаете мой подкаст сейчас... Из России. Всем здравствуйте. Спасибо огромное за ваше время и внимание сегодня. С Днем Победы. С праздником. И... What, uh, how else? What, what else is there? Uh, there's a word for congratulations. Oh, yeah. Удачи. Uh, uh, my Russian isn't great, but it's good enough that I can actually have conversations with business people in Russia. As long as I'm listening and not, you know, I don't have to talk to them too much. But um, yes, I, I can actually carry on decent conversations in Russian at this point. But anyway, the, the reason I wanted to talk um, about VE Day, or again, Day of Victory in Russia, is because of a very interesting article that I just chanced upon. It's a very long article. It's over 7,000 words long by um, Laurent Guyanon, I think, over at uh, the UNS Review. And it talks about Viktor Suvorov, which is the nom de plume of one of the highest ranking defectors that ever went from the Soviet Union to the West. This guy, I think, was a uh, some sort of colonel or general in um, in the Russian military. Oh, I have to go look him up. He's, where's, the, where's the article? It's uh, in here someplace. Uh, ah, yeah, here it is, actually. Um, the article is called, uh, yeah, it's Laurent Guyanon. Uh, published just yesterday, in fact, May 8th, 7,200 words long. The, the link is in the description box. Uh, it talks about Barbarossa. Uh, Suvorov's revisionism goes mainstream. And 
it's all about this uh, this thesis by a chap named uh, where was it? Where is it? Uh, Vladimir Rezun. He's a former Soviet in- military intelligence officer who defected to the West in 1978. Again, he's a very high-ranking, apparently very high-ranking um, uh, officer in the KGB. Uh, and he wrote under the name of Viktor Suvorov um, about how the standard narrative about Operation Barbarossa was a lie. The Western narrative has it that Operation Barbarossa was uh, unwarranted aggression and treachery by the Germans against the Russians. And it was a direct uh, violation of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in which the Russians and the Germans basically agreed not to attack each other and they were kind of essentially looking to carve up Europe between them. And it's, an, it's fascinating because uh, it's a fascinating thesis. I haven't read all the way into it because, I, frankly, I just don't have the really time. But if you have the time, go read through this article because it's very interesting. The bits of it that I've read are very, very good. Um, the point that he's making, the point that Svorov is making is that, in fact, Hitler attacked Russia because the Russian Red Army, under Stalin's orders, massed a ridiculous number of divisions against the Germans on the Eastern Front. And they were, it looked like they were preparing to invade. So Germany's attack was in fact a preemptive strike to stop the Russians from advancing into Europe. Now, you could go back and forth on this for some time because we know that Hitler's plan all along was to advance into Eastern Europe. He wanted to expand the frontiers of the German Empire. He wanted to create a massive buffer zone of rich, fertile territory, uh, Lebensraum, as he called it, um, in the east for the Volk of the Reich to expand into. And that is not surprising because one of Hitler's uh, key policies as Reichskanzler was to institute a a policy of promoting large families. And he succeeded. I mean, Germany's birth rate skyrocketed under Hitler uh, during, at least during the pre-war years. Uh, people were having families of, you know, between four and six kids yeah, fairly routinely. And this was during a time of a booming economy, um, you know, lots and lots of job opportunities out there. Of course, uh, lots of state-controlled enterprise and Hitler wanted to expand eastwards in order to provide for that growing population. Now, that narrative of uh, unwarranted aggression by the Germans against the Russians is part of our standard view of the Second World War. But it's only once you begin to unpack the lies that we've been taught, and you can find any number of podcasts from the past uh, a year and a half, actually. Uh, I've been doing this for almost two years now, by the way. But you can find almost any number of podcasts in which I break down these lies and I talk about how the reality is so different from what we've been taught. Um, last year, I, I think I talked, you know, because this was around um, the same time, it was like May 8th was, or May 9th was a Saturday, and I spoke on the next day uh, in, in my podcast. 
um, I talked about how it was not uh, it was not Allied lives that stopped the advance of the Nazis. It was Russians. This is again part of the same myth that we are taught in school. Uh, you know, if I haven't talked about if I didn't talk about it in a podcast, I definitely referenced it in a post. Uh, it must have been my D-Day post from last year or the year before, in which I talked about how the Russians are in fact responsible for saving Europe. Most people don't understand this. Most Westerners don't understand this. Most Westerners do not understand how important World War II is to the Russian character. I've lived in Russia, so I know what it means to the Russians. They regard Dien Pobiedi as sacred. It is literally a sacred holy day to them uh, in all practical purposes. This is the day uh, in which the immortal regiment marches. Um, these are the living relatives, sons, daughters, grandsons, so on, of the soldiers who fought and died um, against the Germans in World War II, or as they call it, the Great Patriotic War. Um, they view it as a holy struggle, a sacred struggle against an invading enemy. And I think rightly so, because remember, 20 million Russians died defending the fatherland. I mean, you know, there's some question as to whether the Rodina, the Rodina is the correct term to use because, I mean, they refer, the Russians refer to it as Rodina. Uh, Rasia is the Rodina for them. Um, but they ref all their official holidays refer to it as the fatherland. Uh, 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 you know, it, it's Otechestvo, um, I think is the correct term. If you're Russian, um, I, I realize my pronunciation is, is not great, but, you know, I do the best I can. Uh, the Russians view today as actual, uh, as an actual day of remembrance and sacrifice because of everything that they went through during that time. And they endured horrors beyond calculation. I mean, if you go to, um, the tomb of the forgotten soldier, uh, or the tomb of the unknown soldier, I should say, in Red Square, or actually not in Red Square, but close to Red Square. It's uh, actually outside the walls of the Kremlin. It's right near um, uh, Alexandrovsky Sad. Um, it's a beautiful place, and I've been there multiple times. I love going there. I love going to the Kremlin, and I love seeing the, 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 the palace walls. That bit of the Kremlin is really astonishing. There's... A, the, the, it's hard to describe, but it's basically a memorial built with a, an eternal flame. That the, There's a flame there that never, ever goes out. And there are guards standing there in two, you know, uh, on, on either side. And when they do the changing of the guard, it's a very solemn, very uh, powerful ceremony. It's done with excruciating precision. And then as you walk along um, to the right of that memorial and you go towards uh, Alexandrovsky Sad itself, uh, is it towards? Yeah, I believe it's towards. Um, you will go past a series of markers uh, along a low sort of balustrade uh, or a, a, basically a, almost a, a long kind of uh, 
bench, if you will, of names of places, and you will see, you know, Bryansk, um, um, uh, Leningrad, uh, Moskva, um, where else? You know, Volgograd, of course, Kursk. Uh, all of these cities and battle sites where the Red Army bled the Wehrmacht dry and was in turn bled dry because the Wehrmachts were tough fighters. I mean, they were very, very, very skilled fighters. Um, there are a lot of lies that we are taught about history and the notion that the Russians didn't really have anything to do with World War II is one of them. The Russians weren't just involved in World War II, they were integral to winning it. Without the Russians, the West would have lost World War II. Now, that's not to say that the, the British RAF didn't do great things during the Battle of Britain. That's not to say that the British, the Royal Navy didn't do great things to keep, um, the, the, the material under the Lend-Lease Act flowing. Um, that's not to discount or disparage the work of the British Army, uh, or anybody else in fighting the war. It's just that most people don't realize how much of the mythology surrounding the war is just that. It's mythology. It's not real. A lot of it is, in fact, lies. Uh, and one of the greatest lies is the notion that we don't owe the Russians anything. And I want to build on this idea of um, unpacking or breaking down these lies to come back to solving some of the problems that we face today. What you, what you just heard me say about how Hitler actually attacked the Russians in a preemptive strike is something the Russians themselves will consider heresy. They will really get angry with you if you suggest that Stalin was responsible for Hitler's attack. They will get really, really pissed off with you. And there's a reason for that. Again, their mythology, their uh, national history is based around the idea that Stalin rallied the country to heroically respond to a terrible, terrible attack. That also is not quite true. You see, Stalin was responsible for the utter devastation that the Wehrmacht were able to inflict upon the Red Army, who's directly responsible for it. Leading up to uh, Operation Barbarossa, Stalin enacted a severe purge of the entire Red Army officer corps. He, he basically purged out all the elements that he thought were disloyal to him. I, I remember reading one statistic, it was something like 20,000 officers uh, just you know rounded up and shot, uh, executed. Um, and it may have been way more than that. You know, that there were hundreds of thousands of, of military casualties from Stalin's purges. And the result was a weak and broken, uh, Red Army. Um, they simply were not capable of fighting back against the Wehrmacht when they attacked. Uh, the Wehrmacht marched in almost completely unopposed during the summer months. Now, that is before we get to the sheer stupidity of attacking Russia in the first place. There's only one army that's really ever attacked Russia um, and stayed successfully, you know, for more than a few years. Um, well, okay, all right, fine. You, you could you could argue the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Yeah, all right, 
they they stuck around. But you know, I mean, they got chased out eventually, and in pretty brutal fashion. Um, the only army that ever attacked Russia successfully in winter is the Mongol army. That's it. Everyone else has failed. Everyone else. Russia is the anvil against which hammers, military hammers, break themselves. And especially today, attacking Russia is like... I, I like to say that there are three kinds of stupidity. There's uh, regular stupidity. In, in the context of the military, I like to say that there's regularly stupid, i.e. invading... Uh, no, actually, uh, there's regularly stupid, i.e. the Joint Strike Flying Piano, i.e. spending $1.7 trillion. $1.7 trillion. That's more than the entire GDP of freaking Canada on a on an aircraft that can't climb, can't turn, can't run, to quote a RAND Corporation report. And now even the U.S. Air Force has admitted it's hopeless and stupid and a failure. Even they have admitted it's a problem. So that's regularly stupid by military standards. Then there's really, 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 really stupid, like invading Iraq over non-existent weapons of mass destruction and then staying there for basically 20 years um, and spending, what, $7 trillion and counting on a failed invasion that has done absolutely nothing to bring peace to the region. Um, and then there's invading Russia in winter, stupid. That's how stupid invading Russia in winter is. That's the level of stupidity that Hitler tried to pull off. Didn't work out that well for him. But... The point to understand here is that no matter how you unpack the, the, the war in the East, at some level you're going to run into an entrenched mythos and you have to take it apart. You have to dig through it to find the truth. And the truth is that neither Hitler nor Stalin were completely responsible for what happened. You can't just blame one side or the other unequivocally. They were both to blame. Exactly how much blame? Well, you know, that's something for historians to argue over. But the point is that you have to be willing to take on some heresies in order to do this. And this wider point applies to you in your daily life, particularly when you're trying to take on the heresies that we confront around us today. Um, the only way to fight back when all of the institutions around you refuse to acknowledge reality, refuse to try to um, you know, realize what's going on is to start your own heresy. Now that sounds ridiculous. I admit, it sounds absurd. But you have to understand that there's a reason why the heresy of the Reformation started in the first place. There's a reason why the Great Schism took place. There's a fascinating uh, series of videos by Dr. J. Smith of Fander Films up on YouTube right now. Um, he just released it over the past week. It's uh, three videos and it's reasons one to ten why, it's like ten reasons why Christianity is better than Islam. And uh, if you ever heard Dr. J. Smith preach, I mean, he's, he's phenomenal. He's incredibly high energy. He loves to talk. He loves to uh, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is a very good and wonderful thing. Um, and what he has to say about uh, Islam is rooted entirely in fact. It's all 
it's, it's just what he's telling you is just what Islam is. He's not embellishing anything. He's just taking information from Islam's own sources and pointing out why Islam on every theological, philosophical, uh, moral, material level fails compared to Christianity. Now, if you've listened to my previous podcasts on this, you've kind of scratched the very surface of, of the polemical as well as the apologetic arguments against Islam. The, the, the polemical arguments against Islam and the apologetic arguments in favor of Christianity. It's not hard to make these arguments because, again, all you're doing is just comparing like, well, not even like for like, but you're, you're comparing what is good about one faith versus what is really, really terrible about the other. Um, but in the third of those three videos, Dr. Smith makes some very intriguing and interesting revelations or points. Um, you learn that he's actually, uh, he, he trained in the Marines. You, you wouldn't believe it looking at him today because he's so fat, but he looks like Santa Claus. I mean, seriously. Um, but apparently he actually, uh, went into, uh, basic training as a Marine and he went to Quantico and he, uh, went into advanced officer training apparently. And he came eighth in his class out of a thousand a thousand people. And he decided to drop on request. And they stuck him in a little hut um, out near where the airplanes were landing and taking off, uh, near, near a runway, for two weeks to try to make him reconsider. And he said, no, I want to drop on request. I don't want to be a warfighter. And he says he loved being in the Marines. He, he, but he's a pacifist. That's why he dropped out. He's a pacifist. He wanted to join the Marines to understand why people go to war, but he himself is a pacifist. And he then pointed out that, or a little bit earlier in the, in the lecture, he pointed out that there is a reason why the Reformation took place. It's because when the Catholic Church became, or I should say, when Christianity became the state-mandated or state-approved religion of the Eastern Roman Empire under Constantine. When that happened, that's when the corruption started to set in. Now, the Eastern Church resisted that corruption for a long time. The Western Church resisted it somewhat. The Eastern Church manages, managed to resist it for a long time, but by by the time of the great, uh, by the time of the great schism in 1054 AD, when the bands and anathemas, um, came to, to, to be at that point, the damage was already done because each, uh, you know, kind of side of the faith had its own power centers and its own traditions and its own grip on government. And, in the Western Empire, the Holy Roman, the Holy Roman Catholic Church kind of bumbled on for several more centuries, but it just grew more decadent and more corrupt and more spiritually rotten at its core. Um, as bad as the Catholic Church is today, and I say that as someone who actually likes Catholicism in general. I'm a non-denominational Christian, but I actually like Catholics as a general rule. I can't stand the Catholic Church, at least the way it is today. Um, I think the Catholic Church is, 
corrupt and rotten to the core. But, you know, I will be the first to say that the Catholic Church has done tremendous good for humanity. I think the, the, the fact that we have the Catholic Church is a very, very wonderful and good thing. I would never argue that the Catholic Church should be destroyed. I just think it needs to be purged completely. I mean, it, like, fumigated um, from top to bottom. Starting with the fake Pope, the not-Pope, uh, Francis. He is not the Pope. Um, he is not a Pope of the Church in any meaningful sense. He has no clue what the Gospel actually says. He has absolutely no understanding of Scripture. It is, it is, it is disgusting to me to listen to him say, uh, well, we should suspend private property rights, you know, in order to distribute the vaccine equitably. I'm sorry, what? Where the hell did that come from? Where did Jesus ever say, make others give up their stuff so that you can be safe? Show me in the Gospels where it says that. Show me in the Bible where it says that. You're not going to be able to. Where did Jesus ever say that uh, the nations are a bad thing, as Pope Francis says, you know, the not-Pope says? Where does he say it in the Gospels? There is no such thing in the Gospels anywhere. There is no such thing in any any of the epistles. You're not going to find it. So this idea that God doesn't like the nations, God doesn't like private property, God doesn't like the sanctity of the individual, is absolutely anti-Christian in every possible sense. Why then did the Reformation start in uh, with Martin Luther? Now, I'm going to probably piss off, uh, my. he's a friend of mine actually, uh, my friend Adam Piggott, the gentleman adventurer, who is a devout Catholic um, and who follows the teachings of the Catholic Church. Uh, and I'm really going to piss off probably uh, Giuseppe Filotto. Um, you guys probably know, know him as the Kurgan. He wrote a great book called Believe, um, which is all about the Catholic Church and why Catholicism is the true Christianity. Um, I think he raises a lot of good points. You know, I'm not, I don't, I don't have anything against either of them. Uh, I think, I think they're probably right, in all honesty. I think if you look at Catholicism the way it was back in the day, it probably was about, it probably was pretty, and, and remains close, the closest thing we can get to the teachings of Jesus. Um, what I don't like is all the ritual and trappings and all the nonsense that they've layered on top of it. I just, I think that's so stupid. Um, I have never understood why uh, I need somehow to listen to somebody in a fancy robe tell me what to think about the gospel. I've got a, a, I've got a copy of the English Standard Version of the Bible sitting by my bedside. If I want to read it, you know, I've got well, I've got that hard copy of the Bible sitting by my bedside. I've got a King James Bible sitting in another country. Um, I've got a new international version of the Bible sitting somewhere else, uh, sitting in a desk drawer somewhere. Um, I have the ESV digital copy on my tablet and on my phone. Um, I've got the NIV digital copy sitting on my, on, on my tablet and my phone. If I want to, and I've got access to the new English translation, the NIV, the NKJV, the N, the, the KJV, the ESV, the, you know what V online because like you can go to Bible Gateway and read it for free. So I don't need some guy in a fancy f- fancy frock and a big hat to tell me what to think about the scriptures, right? I can read it for myself. I've never understood all of the ritual and the the the, the this and the that and the you know the 
the all of that stuff. I just don't get it. But I will say this. I get why people need it. I don't. I don't need that, but I get why other people do. But the reason why that heresy started in the first place, the reason why Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door, um, to the door of that Wittenberg church uh, way back when, is because the Catholic church had become broken and corrupt. It had become too obsessed with worldly things and was not interested in going back to sola scriptura, only from scripture. That heresy was necessary. Because without it, the Catholic Church would never have changed itself. It would never have gotten back to its core task. Um, there's a lot of reason to argue that the Catholic Church needed Reformation. A major reason was because the Catholic Church, uh, its priesthood, didn't actually know what it was reading. Seriously, this was a huge problem back in the day. The supposedly the monks and the friars and so on and so forth understood Greek and Latin, so they could read the original texts of the Bible. Um, they could understand what they were teaching. Actually, most of them didn't know Greek and Latin. Actually, most of those priests were functionally illiterate in the languages in which the New Testament, never mind the Old Testament, the New Testament was written. So, when it came time to preach the word of the Gospels, they didn't know what they were preaching. This, by the way, is exactly the same problem that you have with Muslims today. Um, they're about seven centuries behind us, behind the Christians. Why? Because they don't understand what it is they're reading. They are told repeatedly that the Quran can only be read and understood in Arabic. That's nonsense. It's garbage. That's ridiculous. We don't have to worry about that. If you speak Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, Latin, Japanese, Russian, Chinese, Swahili, Portuguese, Spanish, uh, whatever, whatever, whatever. I mean, Hindi. The Bible can be read in any of these languages, any one of them. And the man who started that movement was Martin Luther. He was the one who translated the Bible originally from... Um, from Hebrew into German, and not just from Hebrew, but also from Greek and Latin into German. Um, that is where we get the kind of the modern uh, Bibles from. It's, it's one of the places anyway. He is a big part of the reason why we have modern English, you know, lay versions of the Bible out there, but he's also the reason why the modern Protestant Bibles are missing a bunch of books. They are. Go, go look at the, compare the Catholic Standard Bible versus the English Standard Version Bible. If you want, uh, 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 by the way, for those who, who want to read the Bible, get yourself, um, if you want to study Bible, get yourself a new English translation because it's incredibly dense. I mean, you will, there's so much material in there about like different interpretations, like all the translators notes are there. It's incredibly detailed you will understand exactly why certain words and certain phrases were used in certain ways. You will understand why the Hebrew says what it says and why the Greek says what it says and so on. Very, very good Bible for study purposes. If you just want to read the Bible, get yourself an ESV. I strongly prefer the ESV version of the Bible to the NIV. 
uh, I find the NIV to be a little too soft. It's kind of, you know, the Bible for kiddies. Um, but the ESV, I think, preserves it preserves the right balance between the beauty and power of the text and trying to relate it in simple English. You know, it's not, if you try to read the NK, uh, if you try to read the King James Version, that's hard. Try reading Paradise Lost. It, that's about the same level as reading the KJV. It's hard. It's written in archaic English. It's hard to process. There are a lot of people who are KJV purists. I'm like, eh, you know what? I don't, I, I try not to get involved in those food fights. And they really are food fights. But the reason why this is important, why the heresy itself happened, is because Martin Luther recognized there was a huge problem in the church, and he tried to do something about it. He tried to rectify it. And he set about rectifying it by creating his own version of the Bible. Now, there are, as with all heresies, pros and cons. The heresy that I referred to earlier with respect to historical fact and historical motivation lies in demolishing certain myths. If you take apart the myth that the, that the West won World War II, you're going to piss off a bunch of people in the West. If you take apart the myth that uh, Hitler attacked Russia unprovoked, you're going to piss off a bunch of Russians who, trust me, you don't want to piss off because as much as I love the Russians, I, I, I genuinely love Russian people, they can be a bit testy when they're pissed off. Uh, believe me, I know. So if you take apart the myth that um, heresy, in with the, the schism or the, 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 the Reformation was somehow wrong or evil, you're going to piss off a bunch of Catholics. If you take apart the myth that Martin Luther was uh, completely, you know, just a, a virtuous man searching for the truth and so on, you're going to piss off a bunch of Protestants. Everything has shades of gray here, okay? Martin Luther wanted to take a sledgehammer to the Catholic Church's rituals and codices and trappings. And I agree with him about that. There were a bunch of other things that Martin Luther did which were very, very bad. And one of them was to exclude a number of books from the Bible. Now, he didn't do this on purpose, I don't think. My understanding of the history involved is that um, uh, Martin Luther actually... Luther went to the Masoretic texts to uh, pick up the Hebrew Bible. Problem is... That the because he was looking for the the original what he thought were the original Hebrew texts and the the most Hebrew Hebraic texts around at the time were the Masoretic texts. Problem is the Masoretic texts were compiled in you know, like three four hundred five hundred years something like that after the birth of our Lord Christ. The Septuagint, which was the Greek the, the translation into Greek from the Hebrew of the Old Testament, which had been around since Ptolemaic times in Egypt, i.e. since about, what, 300 BC, well, a bit later than that, but, um, you know, the Ptolemies were in Egypt from 300 BC onwards, so um, until about 54 AD. So during that roughly 300, 250 time, 250-year time period, that was the Ptolemaic dynasty. And it was during that time that the Old Testament was translated from ancient Hebrew into 
ancient Greek, were actually a much older set of texts. But because um, Luther was looking for what he considered to be authentic Hebrew texts, he disregarded the Septuagint and only went to the Masoretic texts. And the problem there is that the Septuagint, or I should say the Masoretic texts, uh, excluded a bunch of books that were in the Septuagint. So they excluded things like First uh, and Second Maccabees uh, and a couple of others. Um, fairly important books, but like minor prophets or minor histories. Uh, the Septuagint had them, the Masoretic texts did not. So the result was that the, the Protestant Bible, when it was published, was missing a bunch of books. It was like seven books, I think, or something like that. Seven? Is it seven books or 14? I have to go look it up. But they were missing a bunch of books, bottom line. And if, if you look at the Catholic Standard Bible, it's not missing those books. The Catholic Standard Bible, the Old Testament version, is thicker and more voluminous than the Old Testament in your standard Protestant Bible. So, you know, which Bible do you use? Honestly, I mean, again, bit of a food fight. If you want the, if you're a purist and you want the full, you know, full, full banana set of texts, get yourself a CSB. If you want just the Bible, as commonly understood, get yourself an ESV. With apologies to my Israeli friends, you're not really going to miss a whole lot if you leave out those other books. Okay? You can find them anyway. I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's not difficult to find the other bits and pieces that you want. So, what lesson can we draw from these heresies to our lives today? Well, look around you and you'll find a very similar climate to what existed, uh, back then. Uh, 70 years ago, thereabouts, 75 years ago now, there existed a climate of absolute certainty that one particular group was responsible for one particular set of things. And anybody who questioned it was seen as uh, a traitor, a, a, a doubter, somebody who could not be trusted. Uh, 500 years ago, a similar thing happened with the, uh, the Reformation. Either way, you're going to piss somebody off, right? If you start questioning the official narrative, if you start questioning the official line. So what do you do in that situation? How do you, how do you deal with it? Well, I wish I could tell you it's going to be easy, but it's not. Um, you're going to pay a significant price for trying to seek the truth. You may end up losing everything you have. Um, there's no getting past this. I'm sorry to say it, but there is no way that you can avoid harsh realities. When you do this, when you um, decide for yourself to dedicate yourself to that which is true, or at least to seeking that which is true, you're going to run into tremendous opposition. That's the price you have to be willing to pay. You have to be willing to stand up for yourself and say, I'm not going to accept the lies that people tell me. And you're going to run, you're going to find yourself running down some very strange rabbit holes in the process. Um, it's not easy 
to figure out what is uh, true if you're constantly chasing up theories. This is where discernment comes in. If you start questioning literally everything, sooner or later you're going to find yourself running out of sanity, quite frankly. Um, if you start questioning, for instance, shall we say, uh, whether or not 9-11 happened because of Saudi terrorists, um, but was in fact a plot by the US government in conjunction with Israel, I mean, I don't know if that's true. Um, it could just be a crazy conspiracy theory. I don't know. You could start questioning whether or not the Twin Towers actually collapsed in a controlled demolition uh, rather than because of two jetliners smashing into them. I don't know. Okay, You're going to have to decide for yourself what you accept as true and what you accept as or what you reject as untrue. And you're going to have to come up with your own filtering mechanisms. But the hardest step by far, by far, is the step involving saying to everyone around you, there are four lights. Two plus two equals four. It doesn't matter if they stick you in room 101. Uh, it doesn't matter if uh, some, uh, I guess, what were they, Cardassians? Um, I guess, uh, kidnap you and try to make you say that there are five lights. You have to stay, you have to say what is true. That means, by definition, in the modern day monolithic church of woke, you are a heretic. You have started your own heresy. And you're going to have to live with the consequences of that. And it's not going to be fun. I mean, you're going to find all sorts of opportunities blocked to you. You can't go into the same clubs as everyone else. You can't go to the same hangouts as everyone else. Most people in quote-unquote polite society will look at you like you've grown two heads. Most people will shun you as a leper, a pariah, uh, a, a, an outcast, because you refuse to believe what they believe. You refuse to see things the way they see things. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be easy. But you're going to have to willingly divorce yourself from a system that frankly hates you. You, if you, if you stay blind and, and deaf and dumb, you will get material rewards. Yes. You'll do well for yourself. But if you refuse to accept those lies, you will be cast out. And that's exactly what's happened to every single person who's ever questioned the official narrative. Look at what happened to Martin Luther. Look at what happened to uh, every single branch of uh, the Protestants that followed. You also have to guard against repeating the mistakes of the past. Uh, Dr. J. Smith, again, talking to that congregation in Kansas, I think it was, um, said something very, very interesting about the Brothers in Christ. The, the Brothers in Christ uh, ministry, of which his own particular ministry is a part. And he's talking about where the Brothers in Christ broke off from mainstream Protestantism. 
Now, this is where it gets all sorts of weird because you know that old Monty Python skit in um, Life of Brian, which is hysterical. Uh, if you haven't seen that movie, go watch it. It is absolutely hilarious. Um, the, the, there's that whole people's front of Judea versus the Judean people's front versus the uh, Judean popular people's front or whatever. And it's, it's just every single revolutionary movement always splinters off into these mutually antagonistic factions which cannot bloody stand each other and they're they're all actually the same thing but they they, they change their names because they're all they're, they're fighting over like inches basically of difference um and that's exactly what happened with protestantism that's exactly the problem that protestants have um every single little branch and denomination and sect of protestantism wants to interpret the bible through its own particular lens that's why i just don't identify with any of them i'm like you guys do what you want to do um, as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to try to have a direct conversation with my God. And, you know, if he tells me um, I've got it wrong, then I've got it wrong. I don't, I, I'm not interested in listening to what some, some uh, clergyman from three centuries back or even 50 years back thinks the Bible says. I want to read the Bible for myself and figure it out. Um, you have to guard against that because... What happened with the brothers in Christ, they became radical Protestants versus mainstream Protestants. What's, what's the difference? Well, the mainstream Protestants wanted to make Protestantism or their, their particular branch of Protestantism the state religion of wherever they were. And actually, they succeeded um, in multiple jurisdictions. Uh, Lutheranism became very, very popular in Germany, the Lutheran church. Um, Calvinism became extremely popular in Sweden. Um, Anglicanism, of course, took root in uh, Pommy Bastard land. Uh, why? Well, basically because Henry VIII wanted to divorce his uh, first wife and marry Anne Boleyn, uh, and the Catholic Church wouldn't let him do that, so he basically broke off, you know, he broke the, the the Church of England off from the Catholic Church and put himself as the head of the Church of England. Um, and this is exactly where a lot of the critics of Protestantism, I think, have a very good point. Uh, a lot of those critics argue, I think rightly, that Protestantism is nothing more than an excuse for secular dogma to replace religious dogma. And it's nothing more than an excuse for one asshat to replace another asshat's view of what the Bible says with his own interpretation. I get that, right? I, I agree with that, actually. But you have to be very careful about that. You have to guard against this because it's a huge, huge problem. You can't get past it. The third thing you need to worry about, or the third thing you must do, is seek out like-minded people. What does it say in the Gospels? What does it say in Matthew? Uh, Gospel of Matthew, it says, uh, wherever two or three of you are gathered in my name, I, there I am with you. That's Jesus speaking to his followers. That's Jesus saying to us that wherever we are gathered in his name, we don't need a church. We don't need to worry about the approval of worldly authority. We only need to worry about the approval of our Father above. And that's it. Everything else can go hang. What matters is the approval of our Father above telling us that we are on the right track. And that's what you need to do in order to seek out the truth. You need to start your own heresy. You need to start questioning the narratives that have been presented to you. 
whether it's something academic, like, I mean, at this point, academic, like, did Hitler really invade Russia or did he actually uh, arrange a preemptive strike? Either way, he got his ass kicked. I mean, Hitler, you know, destroyed Germany in the process. Um, did Stalin heroically defend Russia against uh, the Nazis or did he, in fact, uh, cause the invasion in the first place? Well, it's something of an academic question at this point because either way, Russia won World War II at the cost of 20 million of its people in blood uh, and bodies. Um, you know, did... Well, uh, another good example. Um, this one will piss off conservatives. Uh, did Reagan uh, spark off the, 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 the deregulation boom in the 1980s? Well, yes and no. Actually, deregulation started under Jimmy, the idiot peanut farmer, Carter. Um, it wasn't all Reagan's doing, actually. That's the truth. I mean, the, the stealth fighter, uh, which became famous under Reagan... Actually, the genesis of the stealth fighter was years and years before Reagan came to power. Um, a lot of the things that people give credit to St. Reagan Magnus of the right actually belong to previous presidents. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with saying that because he's still the greatest president of the 20th century. But it's just worth pointing out that many of the, the narratives we accept as true are not actually true. You have to start your own heresy. You have to start questioning these things. And only then will you be led to the truth. Because only then will you stop accepting the lies and start looking for the truth and start chasing the rat, these rabbits down their hole. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to chase some of these rabbits. You just kind of have to be a bit careful. You have to um, draw yourself out from going too far down certain holes because after a while, it's going to get kind of nuts. And... Um, the fact is, you still have to survive in modern society. You still need people around you. And if everybody thinks you're a stark raving lunatic, um, you probably need to check yourself. Which means the fastest way to do that is to check with his hugeness upstairs. You need to check in with him regularly. And that's the fourth tip. Pray regularly. I pray every day. Um... You don't have to follow a set schedule. I don't. Um, we're not Muslims. We don't have to pray five times a day. We just have to pray. Uh, we don't have to make big, a big fuss about it. Just you know, ask. Literally just say, hey, Lord, look, does this make sense? And one way or another, he's going to answer you. And that's the truth. So... Um, this has been uh, this has been quite an, a, a long-winded rant, I admit, um, but we are coming up on the one-hour mark, and uh, I do have a hell of a lot of stuff to do in the meantime. Um, this next couple of weeks are going to be crazy busy, so if uh, the frequency of posting goes down, that's why I'm just I'm, I'm swamped right now. But uh, I will. Uh, post this up, well, now, really, and uh, I hope you have gained something useful from it. Uh, to my Russian friends, again, many thanks for uh, tuning in, especially I know this is, uh, I actually do have listeners in Russia, I know, because I can track the stats, um, but if you are in Russia listening to this, well, um, I really appreciate it. 
And uh, for everybody else around the world listening in, um, keep doing what you're doing, and I will see you on the next one. This has been Didactic Mind, Episode 78, How to Start Your Own Heresy, and this is Didact, signing off.